0: Lord, as we come to your word, we pray, O Lord, that you would show us the depths of our need and the height of your grace. We pray that by the Spirit working within us, we would not only have intellectual understanding, but that these truths would sink deeply into our hearts in order that they would flow out into our lives. All for the glory of Christ, we ask, O Lord, that you would... Do your work in us. Accomplish your will in us through your word. Your word is truth. And we commit ourselves and yield ourselves to it by the power of your Holy Spirit for the glory of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to John chapter 17. Be continuing and finishing our study of John chapter 17 today. Not done with our study of John, but we are done with our study of John chapter 17. So we'll be looking at verses 25 and 26 today uh, as we conclude this study that has taken over six months. It's taken us over six months just to get through John chapter 17. Now, in all fairness, I know that sounds like a really long time, but there were Puritans who spent over five years preaching just this chapter, so i didn 't subject you guys to that uh, to that incredible uh, amount of detail, but that 's how much depth there is in this single chapter uh, easily um, the, the the greatest chapter in John, possibly the greatest chapter in all of scripture. but what a glorious blessing it 's been to spend so much time in this chapter. You know, when we consider all the things that we've seen throughout this chapter, all the, the things that the Lord Jesus prayed for, when we consider all the, the, the glorious blessings that He prayed for for His church, they should be showing up in our lives. We realize that. And it makes me think, man, if only the world knew If only those who who don't believe, if only they they knew these blessings, how rich these blessings were, and how sweet these blessings in Christ are. If only they would be willing to listen and to deny themselves, to turn from their sin, to really listen and and to, to believe. Surely they would be hounding Christians, pleading with us, asking, you know, what do I have to do to have the blessings that you have what must I do to be saved but the fact that this is not the case is a sad case it's a sad fact and it underscores and it confirms right before our very eyes that apart from God's grace working in a man taking hold of a man and changing his heart all are spiritually dead And none have ears to hear, none have eyes to see, and none want ears to hear or eyes to see. We've seen Jesus pray for things that the church would be characterized by throughout the age. Jesus prayed that we would have His joy. He prayed that we would be holy. He prayed that we would pursue and yield ourselves increasingly to His Word because His Word is the truth. He prayed that we would be faithful to our mission, to our purpose. He prayed that we would have unity among ourselves, and that one day we may be where He is in order that we may behold His glory. These are the things that the church is designed to have and to be characterized by, both congregationally and individually. We should have these qualities as a congregation, but... Each one of us individually should also have all of these qualities. Jesus has prayed for them, so why would we not have them, right? And if you're keeping count, that's six things that we've covered so far, six blessings that Jesus prayed that His people, that His church would be characterized by. But seven is the perfect number in Scripture. And so it shouldn't be surprising that there is one final thing by which the church should be characterized that Jesus prayed for on this night. The seventh quality won't be surprising to you. Uh, because it's actually been kind of like a thread that runs, that, that, that's, that's sewn throughout these previous six qualities. And it's something that Jesus has already touched on a couple times in John's Gospel. In fact, he touched on it earlier that very night, uh, back in uh, chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, where he said at the Last Supper, he said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, and that you also love one another. One another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Now, of course, that combines a couple qualities in there. Uh, The one another uh, is a reflection of the unity that we have, because this isn't talking about uh, loving just anyone. Specifically, Jesus' command was that we love our fellow Christians the same way that Jesus has loved us. So love is the seventh blessing that the Lord prays for the church to be characterized by. It's the thread that runs through the previous six characteristics. And that, if nothing else, shows us how important this final quality is. But how wonderful is it to to realize, how wonderful is it for us to know that what Jesus has commanded of us, that we love one another, what Jesus has commanded that we that we do he also prayed that we would have what he commanded we would do he also provided for us in his prayer God and only God can provide what God requires that's such an important principle that principle runs from Genesis to the end of Revelation that thread is throughout scripture God must provide what God requires And this is such an important characteristic. Paul would actually go on to write this in 1 Corinthians 13. 13. He said, Now faith, hope, love, abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Now if you were to take those three things and ask most Christians which of these things is the most important, if we didn't have that verse, we might not know. But Paul's saying that the greatest of those three qualities is love. And you'll appreciate this, or at least, at least I do. The Greek word that gets translated as greatest is mega. Now, I don't even need to unpack that for you. It kind of unpacks itself. The, the, the word greatest in Greek is mega. Uh, that's what love is supposed to be for the Christian. So this final night of Christ's earthly ministry before going to the cross, began with John telling us, back in chapter 13, verse 1. He wrote, Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that His hour had come, that He would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. How fitting it is that this whole section that starts on this night, it starts with the Lord's Supper, with chapter 13, verse 1, and it ends here, this section. This is the, the whole part that he's spending with the disciples. It starts with love, and it ends with the subject of love. So the central point of the passage that we come to today, uh, this, this final passage in John's 17th chapter, is that all who are in Christ Jesus know Jesus as the full, true, and perfect revelation of God who was sent by the father to lead us to truth and to true love that we may know God. So Jesus concludes this magnificent prayer with these words, verses 25 and 26. He says, "O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I have made your name known to them and will make it known so that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. Now commentators are a little bit perplexed, or at least they seem to be a little bit perplexed, uh, by the words that begin this passage. Uh, This is the only place in all of Scripture where we see the Father referred to as righteous father. So A.W. Pink writes in his commentary, it is not easy to determine the precise relation between uh, the the precise relation which the last two verses of John 17 bear to the preceding ones. Richard Phillips notes in his commentary, quote, it is not obvious why Jesus notes God's righteousness here, end quote. Now, I have a theory uh, as to why he Uses that designation here. Why? Why he uses the word righteous here, and that's because the word righteous literally means to do what is right. Uh, the word, the Greek word, can also be translated as just, uh, and it often is translated that way. But Jesus concludes his prayer, therefore, by stating that he knows the Father. He's given his petitions to the Father, and he knows that the Father will do what is right. Now, once we've laid out our petitions before God, concluding our prayer with a word of confidence that He will do what is right seems like a wise, a good, and a natural thing to do. After all, it it is not his will to grant our petitions. If we're praying for something that is not his will, we certainly don't want him to do it. We want him to do his will, not our will, because we're so limited, we're so finite in our knowledge and our wisdom, but God is not. He is infinite in those qualities, so it seems like a good thing to say Lord, we know that you will do what is right. You know what we're asking for, but you will do what is right. Kind of like Jesus praying, not my will, but thine be done. Now, this clause, O righteous Father... Uh, it seems, therefore, to, uh, to kind of serve as a bridge between two different groups of people. Uh, between the previous petition, in which Christ prayed that we, His people, would be with Him where He is, that we may behold His glory, and the following clause, which is of the unbelievers. He says, although the world has not known you. For us to be where Jesus is, God must execute justice Because that's who God is. By His very essence, He is just. It is impossible for God to do what is not right. God, therefore, for us to enter into where Jesus is, that we may behold His glory, God must execute judgment. He must do something, therefore, to cleanse us of our sin. That is, to make us righteous like He is righteous. God's justice, God's righteousness must be satisfied. And this demand, of course, would be met the following day as Jesus went to the cross and bore our sin. He would take our sin upon Himself and He would bear the wrath that you and I deserve in order that God's justice, God's righteousness would be satisfied. Because a righteous judge must punish sin. But the Father's righteousness is also what the world, who hasn't known God, hates about God. In fact, they haven't even imagined that about God. We love that Jesus satisfies God's justice, God's righteousness for us. The world not only doesn't know it, but they shun the idea that that God is righteous and that somebody else can can pay for our sin, can pay our sin debt. The world would never imagine that God would require that they have the perfect righteousness that God has when they stand before him in judgment one day. Yesterday, my wife and I were having a conversation, and she said, you know, people try to be uh, more powerful than God. People try to be more sovereign than God. But why don't people try to be more holy than God? And I think the answer is because people have not imagined God to be holy. They have not imagined God to be righteous. They they have an idea of what they're going to do when they stand before God in judgment someday. That you know they think, "Oh, I'll, I'll I'll just show them what I did. You know, I I've done some good things in my life. I'm not as bad as so and so, right? But righteousness, perfect, undefiled righteousness, is central to who God is. That's one of His, uh, His attributes, which is exactly why salvation can never, ever be by works. It must always be by grace, because we have to be cleansed of our sin. We can't go into heaven with even the slightest stain of sin still on us. Think of it this way. I am personally deathly allergic to uh, to mulberry trees. Um, I think I would probably die within a day if you chained me to a mulberry tree that's in bloom. Uh, now, for that reason, I, I stay away from mulberry trees, obviously, similar to the way, if you think about it this way, kind of like how God stays away from sin. Uh, so if you ever come over to my house and you've been uh, living and, and standing under a, a blooming mulberry tree, let me just tell you, I'm going to know. First of all, I'm going to know that you've been by a mulberry tree and you're going to have to leave. Um, not to be rude, but you're just going to have to leave because I can't be around mulberry pollen. Now you might say, oh, I don't have a lot of mulberry poll- pollen on me. It's, it's just a little bit. It doesn't matter. Similarly, in a greater way, God cannot dwell and will not dwell in the presence of sin. He can't even look upon it, the Scriptures tell us. And to fallen man, the idea that those who enter into heaven can't come in with even the slightest stain of sin remaining on them, the idea that they must have the very perfect, the very unblemished, the very undefiled righteousness of God. That idea is completely foreign to the thinking of natural fallen man when they think about God. As Christians, we know this about God. We know that He cannot look upon sin, that He will not dwell in the presence of sin. We know that that's what He requires of us, perfect righteousness. And we know that that's what He has freely given us, in Christ that while Christ took our sin upon himself that our sins were imputed to him his perfect righteousness was simultaneously imputed or or credited or transferred to us so that we may have the very righteousness that God requires because everything that God requires God must provide God must provide what he requires in all cases. And this is at least one reason why the world doesn't know God, as Jesus says here if they think that they can get into heaven at all, some people do think they're going to heaven. Some people will say, oh, I don't believe in heaven. Uh, but if they do think that there is a way for them to get into heaven, they think that it'll be by their own merit that they'll go to heaven. They think that it'll be because they were a good person. They weren't as bad as so-and-so, or they, they'll, they'll claim, you know, my, my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. But Jesus tells us of that very day when people will stand before him in judgment and how startled how how shocked they'll be to find out that their good works weren't enough in Matthew chapter 7 the end of the sermon of the mount he says this he says not everyone who says to me Lord Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven but he who does the will of my father who is in heaven will enter many will say to me on that day Lord Lord did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles let me stop there for a second and ask you this whose merit are they claiming as they stand before jesus in judgment who who, who are they drawing attention to lord what about all these things i did what about this what about when i did this what about when i did that they're pointing And claiming their own merit. Not realizing that it could never be sufficient. They've done the greatest miracles, the greatest works imaginable. It wasn't enough. They were expecting to be granted into heaven because of what they had done while they were still bearing the crimson stain of sin on themselves. These were people who did not know God as a righteous father. These were worldly people, which is exactly why Jesus says to them, and I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. The world doesn't know God. And one of the things that indicates that a person does know God is that they do not practice lawlessness. Those who do not know God are lawless. They act as if there is no higher moral authority than themselves. That is the very definition, the very epitome of lawlessness. The world does not know God. The world does not love God. The world does not worship God or obey God. But for those who are in Christ, these things can never be said. We do know God. We do love God. We do worship and obey God. If you are in Christ, you do these things because you know our righteous Heavenly Father. Jesus tells us in no uncertain terms here that He has made the righteous Father known to you if you are in Christ. And if you are in Christ, then you have not only come to know God, but you have also come to love God. But why do you love God? The Apostle John writes this, 1 John 4, verse 19. He says, we love because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. It's impossible to know God without also loving God. If you know God, you will love God. And if you love God, it's because you know God. And you know and love God because he first loved us. This verse in 1 John 4:19 is giving us a cause and effect. We love because there's the The cause, His love, we love because He loved us. Why do we love God, but the world doesn't? Why do we love God? Be very careful how you answer that question, friends. That's a very important question, but you must tread very lightly with that question because if you take any credit at all for why you love God then you have something to boast of in yourself. And the Scriptures are clear that the Gospel leaves us with absolutely nothing to boast of in ourselves. We love God because God first loved us. We love God because God has replaced our old heart, our unregenerate heart, which was cold, which was impenetrably hardened by sin, and He replaced it with a new heart, of living flesh, a heart that would love Him, a heart that would desire to know Him, a heart that would desire to obey Him and would seek to please Him, a heart that would long to walk in fellowship with Him. Prophesying of the New Covenant, which at the time was still yet to come, God said to the prophet Ezekiel, in Ezekiel thirty-six, verses twenty-six and twenty-seven, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of, of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. So the prophet Jeremiah, God prophesied of the new covenant, saying, I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again, each man his neighbor, and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. Did you catch that part in there? about those, uh, how all who partake of the New Covenant would know the Lord. From the least of them to the greatest of them. From a child to a Ph.D. scholar. Uh, Any Christian knows God. All Christians know God because Christ has shown God to them. He has made the Father's name known to them. Now, of course, when he talks about the Father's name, he's referring to the essence of God, uh, who God is, what God is like, what God doesn't like, what he's not like, uh, what his purposes are, etc. So when we realize how far away from God we were before, before we became recipients of the new heart, before we became partakers of the new covenant, and when we consider how by grace he called us To himself, talking about the the sovereign, effectual calling of God and how he worked to shape our heart, how he worked to shape our will so that we would respond to the gospel by believing. When we consider how he gave us ears to hear and how he gave us eyes to see, all by grace, all a work of divine grace, and when we come to consider the beauty of this precious and amazing costly and yet priceless gift of salvation that he has given us it produces a response in us it does not leave us where we are it produces a response in us first of all it humbles us because when our eyes are open to see the truth we must confess that we are sinners And not only are we sinners by nature, because Adam and all of his race fell when Adam fell, we're not only sinners by nature, but we are also sinners by choice. We want to sin. That's what the the flesh wants. That's our choice. And it forces us to confess that apart from God's grace taking hold of us, and working in us, we are incapable of doing anything that's pleasing to God. We look at passages that tell us that none are good, none are righteous, and none seek for God. And we marvel at the fact that part of the fruit of the Spirit is goodness. So there is good in us after the Spirit takes up residence within us. It's part of the fruit of the Spirit. We're in awe of the fact that Christ's righteousness has been imputed to us, and that we stand therefore without the stain of sin on us before Him. And we're stunned that God would show such amazing grace to us that He sought us when we were once blind and would never have chosen to seek Him. Now if those things don't humble you, friends, nothing will. Nothing will. And and if you you can't be humbled by that, then you can't be saved by His grace. It was A.W. Tozer who said, For the Christian, humility is absolutely indispensable. Without it, there can be no self-knowledge, no repentance, no faith, and no salvation. End quote. See, the person who isn't humbled by the realization that we are sinners who deserve hell... you've got to humble yourself to to admit that that's true. Otherwise, you'll be like the world who says, oh, but I'm not such a bad person. See, that's somebody who's still got some ego in there who's saying, ah, I'm, I'm good enough for you, God, when the Bible says otherwise. Jonathan Edwards says, quote, nothing sets a person so much out of the devil's reach as humility, end quote. What a blessing it is, What a humbling blessing it is to realize that while we were born children of the devil, according to Ephesians chapter 2, God gave us a heart that would be humble before Him, and a heart that would believe the gospel, and He adopted us as His own children, removing us from the devil's family and the devil's reach, all by grace alone. So, the first effect that salvation results in for us, within us, is humility. It makes us humble. But the greater effect that it produces in us is love. Is love. Real, biblically defined love. Not love by the world's standards. Love according to the Bible's standards, according to God's standards. Look at what Jesus says. He says, So that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. So that. When he says so that, we recognize that he's talking about the purpose of what he has done. What did he do so that the love that the Father had for the Son would be in us and that the Son himself would dwell in us? What did he do to to make that possible? He made God known to us. He made the Father's name known to us. And the person who knows God cannot help but to love God. This is an irresistible effect of knowing God. And it's for this reason that the highest calling, the greatest calling known to all of mankind is to know God. God. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. How are you going to glorify Him if you don't know Him? How are you going to enjoy Him if you don't know Him? No, the highest calling is to know God in order that we may glorify Him and in order that we may enjoy Him forever. We've been studying the book by J.I. Packer in our Wednesday night studies, uh, the book titled Knowing God. If you have never read this book, uh, and if you're not participating in this study with us, I would urge you to to read this book. Um, Put that book on your proverbial bucket list of books. Uh, But Packer begins the book by quoting Charles Spurgeon, who once said this of the importance of knowing God. Spurgeon said, quote, the proper study of A Christian is the Godhead. The highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls his Father." There is something exceedingly improving to the mind in a contemplation of the divinity. It is a subject so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity." Being that the highest calling given to man is to know God, And to not only know about God, but to actually know God. We would be wise to remember that this is the very essence. Knowing God is the very essence of the eternal life that we have in Christ Jesus. If you have your Bibles open, look back at verse 3 of John chapter 17. Back at the beginning of our uh, chapter at hand, Jesus said this back in verse 3. He said, this is eternal life. So he's going to define it. This is eternal life that they may know you. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's the essence of eternal life. Now we tend to think of eternal life in terms of uh, a measurement of time, and, and it is. Uh, it's, it's a new life that God gives us uh, upon putting Uh, our faith in Jesus Christ, which begins at that moment and which extends into eternity. It lasts forever. It's a a life that never dies, even when our earthly bodies do. It's a life that continues into eternity. And so in one sense, yes, uh, it is a measurement of time if we can pretend for a moment that eternity can be measured. Uh, if, If you were to say, how long is a stick that has only one end? That would be a tricky question. Um, you can't measure it, but, but let's just pretend for a minute that eternity can be measured. Uh, that's what it's like. We simply believe that it has a beginning, but that it doesn't have an end. But eternal life is much more than that. It's much more than a, a measurement of time. It's so much more. It's not only to be thought of in terms of time, but also of kind. That is, it's not only a quantity of life, but it's also a quality of life. It's a life in which we walk with God, in which we know God, in which we are constantly growing in our knowledge and our understanding of God. And it's a life in which this is our highest priority of all. It towers above every other priority in life and we know God, and we grow in our knowledge of, gro- uh, of God, and as we do these things, we will also grow in our love. Because when we set our minds on something, we become like that very thing. Think about like how Kobe Bryant studied Michael Jordan for so many years so that he would eventually become like Michael Jordan. It has that effect. That's, that's the danger of idolatry, of setting our minds on anything lower than God, we'll become like that thing. And and this is kind of obvious that we would grow in our love, isn't it? I mean, after all, we know that God is using every single second of our lives and causing every single circumstance of our lives uh, to grow us in the likeness of Christ. We also know that Christ loves God, and we also know that Christ is God incarnate, and that God is in His very essence love. And with all these things in mind, of course, the conclusion is that as we grow in Christ's likeness, we will also grow in our love. Christ is God, God is love, and we are growing in Christ's likeness. So therefore, we will be growing in our love as we grow in our knowledge and our understanding of God. See, there are plenty of people out there who would say, you know, I don't need to worry about theology, I don't need to worry about doctrine. They just love Jesus, and they'll say, you know, I just love Jesus, and I just want to show the love of Jesus to the world, as if it's a one or the other type of deal. It's fallacious. Uh, It's it's not an either or, it's a both and, because you, you love Jesus by knowing him. And you come to know Him through these things that we call doctrine, through this thing we call theology. Think of it this way. The Latter-day Saints have a Jesus. The Muslims have a Jesus. The Jehovah's Witnesses have a Jesus. And, and, And the Jesus that each one of them believes in, and the Jesus that Christianity affirms, are all very different. How do you know which Jesus is the right Jesus? The answer is... Doctrine, theology, doctrine, theology, it makes all the necessary distinctions between what is true about God and what isn't true about God. The knowledge of God, not just knowing about God, but actually knowing God on a personal level is the origin, the source of distinctly Christian love. When we truly understand and believe doctrine... It doesn't have the effect of making us hard-hearted. It doesn't have the effect of making us uh, cold and indifferent toward God and toward our fellow man, toward the world. Quite the opposite, in fact. As Richard Phillips notes in his commentary, he says, quote, an increased knowledge of God, that is, theology, must rightly result in a corresponding love for God and the love of God working in us. End quote. now, we have to admit that doctrine is a good thing, but that doctrine can be a very dangerous thing when it only fills our minds and nothing else. But when it's rightly understood, it flows out into our lives, not only when it fills our minds, but also when it fills our hearts if it fills your mind, but it doesn't fill your heart, if it doesn't flow out from your heart into your life, you'll be no better off than the world. You'll just know some things about God because you'll, you'll just know these, these facts, these statistics, without actually knowing Him personally. And what good is that? Knowing Him personally will always produce love within us. I believe that this distinction between knowing about God and actually knowing God in a a relational sense is what Paul had in mind when he said to the Corinthians uh, in chapter 8, verse 1. He said, knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. Uh, You've probably heard it more commonly uh, worded as knowledge puffs up. Now, Paul was absolutely not... Saying that uh, that knowledge is something that we should avoid as Christians, he's not saying that knowledge is a bad thing in and of itself. As if truth and doctrine are evils that we are to avoid at all costs. Uh, after all, Paul himself was a fierce defender of the faith. Uh, his letter to the Galatians, for example, was motivated by what. By his, ado- by, by his desire for the, the purity of doctrine to remain steadfast. Uh, but what Paul is saying is that if you are filling your mind with truths and with facts and with doctrine, but the truth and the doctrine isn't also filling your heart, then that doctrine will only produce a negative effect. It won't edify you, it will puff you up. It will make you arrogant. Again, the opposite of being humble. True understanding of Christian doctrine, of of theology proper, always includes application of those truths. Taking those truths and not just knowing it, but it affects our lives in one way or another. And our doctrine is never to be detached and disjointed from this love that flows from knowing God. If we are to be sanctified in the truth of God's Word, as Jesus said back in verse 17, we must understand that that is uh, something that needs to be more than head knowledge. We need to do more than just know what the Bible says. We need to live our lives in accordance with it. Scripture also says we're, we're not just to know the truth, we're not just to be sanctified by the truth, but we are also to speak the truth. How? In love. In love. Truth that's spoken without love is powerless. It's ty- tyrannical. It, maybe it's even annoying. Maybe that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 1, If I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal, which indicates that truth spoken without love is irritating, to say the very least. Those of us who affirm the doctrines of grace are often more guilty of this than, uh, than we should be. Sometimes we're more guilty of this than our Arminian brethren, if we're being completely honest. We call it cage stage. Anybody been through cage stage? I, I did, but I kept it as quiet as I possibly could because I knew about it. Um, but call it whatever you want to call it. But those of us who are uh, who hold to a reformed soteriology, a, a, a reformed understanding of salvation, that is, we have a tendency to at least go through a stage, uh, and I say a stage because hopefully it ends, Right? in which we are so excited about the truth and the veracity of the doctrines of grace that we present them in a way that can very easily uh, too easily offend others it it at least doesn't seem as loving as it should but we don't want to swing too far in the other direction either to the point where we're so focused on showing love uh, that we don't speak truth If a brother or sister is in sin, we must love them enough to speak the truth, but we must do so in love. See, it's not loving to say nothing while a brother or sister falls into sin. It's hateful to remain silent while somebody who claims to be a brother or sister in Christ falls into a habitual pattern of sin. That's totally antithetical to Christian love, to stay silent. Truth must be spoken. But truth must be spoken, motivated by love. Christian love will speak the truth. But it will do so with the motivating factor being love for God. Love for the truth. And love for the person who's slipping into sin. This past week I came across a headline that read, The truth is not hate speech. I thought that's an interesting title. If you you know me, I think that the whole idea of uh, there being hate speech is just kind of silly. Who determines what constitutes or what doesn't constitute hate speech? The answer is fallen man does. Uh, And that's why in some places in Western civilization, you can actually be arrested for simply affirming what the Bible says about things like marriage and sexuality. Uh, Why should things like that be illegal? Because it hurts somebody's feelings, uh, is basically what it comes down to. That's where the concept of labeling something, anything, as hate speech becomes immoral or even evil. It's basically a way of saying you're not allowed to believe this or that. You're not allowed to have this or that opinion, even if this view that you are espousing comes directly from the Word of God. But here's what we have to know. Even if there's no such thing as hate speech, and I I don't think there is. I think there's just speech motivated Mm -hmm. by something. So even if the truth itself isn't hate speech per se, if our speech is driven by something other than love, if our speech is driven by hatred rather than love, what good is it anyway? It's like a noisy gong. It's like a clanging cymbal. So who cares? And Jesus is really our model here. Because nothing that He ever said or did was done or said without love being the motivating factor. Love for God. Love for the truth. Since Jesus is the way, the truth. The way, the life, and the truth. And loving compassion for the sinner. If we didn't know God, if we were lost in darkness and, and did not know God, The idea and the importance of speaking truth in love would be completely lost on us. But when we consider how lost we were, what rebels we were, and how kind, how gracious, how loving Christ was to die in our place while we were still sinners, it changes us. Remember that it has a humbling effect, or it should when we consider Christ's commandment that we love one another just as He has loved us, it should soften our hearts because it's at least our desire to obey, even if we don't obey perfectly or completely, right? We at least have the desire. It has to start with that. If we don't have the desire, we have nothing. Without a faith that is growing in understanding and in knowing God, there will be no way for us to understand what it means to love Anyone as Christ has loved us. Now all of this is very important for us to see because of something that Jesus says here in this passage. He says, I have made your name, speaking to the Father, I have made your name known to them and will make it known. So there's something that's been accomplished and there's a work that He is going to continue In the future. In other words, he continues to this very day to bring sinners to know the Father. Just as there was once a time when you didn't know the Father, but the Father was revealed to you. It's because Christ made him known. So it wasn't just something that He did with the disciples, it's something that He continues to this very day. He brings sinners to know the Father. How? How does He bring them to know the Father? First of all, through His Word and by His Spirit, of course. But secondly, through our lives and through our service to advance God's kingdom on earth faithfully all of this is in order that the love with which the father loves the son may be in his people and that christ himself would take up residence within and dwell within his people is this not our hope of glory that christ would dwell in us Paul says to the Colossians, the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to His saints to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of, his glory, of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you. The hope of glory. That's from Colossians chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Now to have God dwell with His people, in the presence of His people, within His people. That was the hope of the Old Testament saints. And in Christ, that hope is realized. It's fulfilled. He dwells within His people. If Christ dwells in you, not only should that be motivating you to love, but it should also be motivating you toward holy living. Think of it this way. Back in the 1990s, uh, you young guys, you've you've probably heard of it. Um, But those of us who are, you know, in the middle of life, uh, hopefully, um, we used to see these bracelets that had um, WWJD on them, which meant "What would Jesus do?" And people would wear these bracelets. Christians wore them, and it was really supposed to be something of a reminder to us—a reminder that we are supposed to be reflecting Christ in some way in our lives. But what we need to remember when we consider a question like that, what would Jesus do? What we need to remember is that Christ upheld God's law perfectly. That's what Jesus did. Uh, So whatever, whatever Jesus did, it was always in accordance with God's word and in accordance with his knowledge of the scriptures and of the Father. Now that fashion fad has received a lot of criticism in recent years, and while I think some of it is valid, uh, the truth is that with Christ dwelling in us, we are supposed to be walking the way that he walked. Uh, John says in his first epistle, 1 John chapter 2, verse 6, the one who says he abides in him ought to walk in the same manner as he walked. So the fact that Christ dwells within us, should produce humility, love, and holiness. Again, this, this is where if we're knowing God and, and loving God becomes more than just intellectual knowledge. This is where it filters down into our hearts and out into our lives. It should produce these things in our lives. Now, that's not to say that we're going to be without sin, not on this side of glory. As I've said a, a time or two before, you've probably heard me. We might not be sinless, but we should sin less. If you were told that there was a a good and beloved uh, king who was coming to stay at your house, wouldn't you clean your house up? Wouldn't you make sure he had a clean bed to sleep in? Wouldn't you do some reading to find out the types of food that he likes or the things that he likes to do or doesn't like to do? to prepare for this king to come and stay in our homes, we want to know something about him. We need to know things about him. And this being the case, how much more should we commit ourselves to knowing all that we can about God who has revealed himself fully in Christ who now dwells within us? If he takes up residence within us, as he says, should we not also have great concern to clean the house up, to turn from sin, to know what pleases Him, to know what He likes and what He doesn't like. We must continually look to Christ, friends. This is where we come to know God. He is the full revelation of God. John said back in John chapter 1, verse 18, no one has seen God at any time, speaking about the Father, only the begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained Him. In other words, that's to say that nobody has ever seen the Father, but God the Father is revealed in and through the life of Christ, which is found in the pages of Scripture. If you want to know God, you must spend time in His Word. You must spend time setting your eyes upon Christ as He is revealed in God's Word. All who are in Christ know Jesus as the full, the true, and the perfect revelation of God who was sent by the Father to lead us to truth and to true love and to knowledge of God. This is the kind of life that is produced by knowing God and by knowing Christ. And this this thing, this knowing God and loving God, it changes everything for us. As J.I. Packer notes in his book, he says, quote, Once you become aware that the main business that you are here for is to know God, most of life's problems fall into place of their own accord. What a blessing that is. Knowing God is our highest calling and our greatest priority in life. And the way we do that is by searching the Scriptures, by knowing the Scriptures, studying and memorizing the Scriptures it's then that His truths will fill our minds. And not only our minds, but our hearts also. And so friends, may we never read His Word. And may we never hear His Word preached and receive it only as intellectual filling, intellectual stuffing in our minds. But may it permeate our minds and our hearts that it may flow out into our lives. And that starts by looking continually to Christ, who is the full revelation of God in the flesh. The one who causes us to know God, who reveals God to us, which results in joyful, holy living that's motivated by love for God, love for His truth, and love for the brethren. Let's pray. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for this chapter, the depths of which we have not even begun to realize. Thank You for all the blessed and glorious things that Jesus has prayed for His church in this chapter. And we pray, O Lord, that by Your Spirit working within us, by Christ dwelling within us. We pray, O Lord, that we would grow in His likeness. We pray, O Lord, that these truths that You have revealed to us in Your Word, we pray that they wouldn't just fill our minds, but that they would also soften our hearts, humble our hearts, cause us to love You, cause us to worship You, cause us to desire to know You more fully. All in order, Lord, that you may continue to reveal yourself through Christ as your people preach your word around the world. We pray, O oh Lord, for our brothers who preach on the streets, who are uh, in, a, in a rough crowd in Sturgis uh, this week. We pray for their safety, and we pray, O oh Lord, that Christ would make the Father known to many as your word is preached. Give us boldness. Give us courage to not only hold to your word, but to live it out in front of the world, that Christ would be glorified in our lives. In his name we pray. Amen.